I could not help but think as Pastor Johnson spoke about the fact that there are some blue jackets here. The other night when he asked different ones from different sections of the country to stand, and he said the Middle Atlantic states, and by the way, for those of you who are not aware, that is New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. I expected to see a number of blue jackets go up. Only I stood up. <laughs> Brother Balog assured me, though, that he is aware of the fact we teach theology and Bible there and not geography. <laughs> but before we go into the Word of God this evening, uh, Pastor Johnson asked that I say a word about the school. To most of you, it is not necessary, but there are a few of you who raised your hands and said you were here for the first time, and therefore there may be some of you who are here for the first time who have never heard of Berean School of Bible and Theology. The school is situated 45 miles north and west of Pittsburgh, uh, just about halfway between Youngstown, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we have a small uh, school, and uh, we only have about 12 students, and uh, we are meeting in the parsonage basement of Grace Bible Church. Now, you can envision what that might be in your mind, and you wouldn't be able to envision it. We did some remodeling this year, neither could I. But nonetheless, uh, we are uh, standing for the Word of God rightly divided and for the message that has been committed to the Apostle Paul for us this day. Therefore, if you are interested any further, there is in the the back of the auditorium uh, on the table uh, some brochures concerning the school, and if you are interested, you may pick one up and take it along with you, and it will explain in some detail what we are doing there. Now, if you'll turn with me, please, in your scriptures, there are two portions of scripture I would like you to turn to for our scripture reading, and that is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, And the other is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you would turn to both of those passages. Matthew chapter 19 and 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'd like to begin reading with Matthew 19 and verse 27. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, Ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath 
uh, forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. And then I'd like us to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and begin reading at verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, and that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Nevertheless, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them who should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As we come to this conference and as we look upon the theme sign, it came to pass, but now, and as you have looked at your brochures and seen what is coming up yet and what already has been taking place in our services, I'm sure there is something that stands out in our minds, that behind all of this, we are trying to bring across the fact that there is a distinction between prophecy and mystery, that there's a distinction between God's prophetic program and God's secret program. Now, to most of us, that is something we have heard time and time and time again. Now, maybe it's because I am comparatively new in the grace message that I still enjoy hearing it time and time and time again. Perhaps not, for some of you who have been in it many more years seem to still enjoy hearing it time and time again. But the church at large, and here I am referring to the uh, body of Jesus Christ and members of Christ on this earth needs to hear it. For today the church is divided. We are not united. And as we sing that, or as we used to sing that uh, song, onward Christian soldiers, all one body we, we are not divided. We know we are divided. We cannot go to any town of any size where we do not find several churches, the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ on this old earth, as far as the practical experience goes, is a divided church. Now, surely we're one in Christ. And of course, we are one in faith and hope and love in Christ. But on this old earth, we are greatly divided. And if we would really look at this matter sincerely and carefully, as I had to do about seven or eight years ago, you'll have to come to the conclusion the reason we are divided 
is because either we do not know about this distinction between God's prophetic program and God's secret program, or we do not know how to rightly divide the distinction between the two. Before I knew the grace message, I knew about Dr. Schofield's Bible. You see, I've come a long way from covenant theology to dispensational theology to the grace message. And most of us have come along in a number of ways in that same direction. But when we got to rightly dividing the word of truth in accordance to what God has laid down in his word, we stopped there. Oh, we didn't stop studying the word of God, but we rested on that foundation. And that foundation is God has a secret program and God has a prophetic program. And even as we come to the title of this sermon, 12 apostles for 12 thrones and one apostle for one body, we again are emphasizing the distinction between those two programs. Now, while we will, to some degree, cover material that has been given by others and what will be covered by others yet, nonetheless, in those titles, there's a different aspect of, the, of that distinction given for each speaker. And as I come to this, I want us to confine mostly our thoughts this evening to the fact that there are 12 apostles for 12 thrones and that there is one apostle for one throne. And as I thought about that in those scripture verses we read, because in Matthew, in that 19th chapter, it of course is where Christ spoke to the uh, apostles, assuring them that they would sit on those uh, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes, in that time that he spoke about when his kingdom would be established here on the earth. But before I would get ahead of myself, I would like to predicate a little bit this sermon and what we are going to go into this evening by an important message. It's almost like a commercial, isn't it? A message to the sermon. If we can only <clears throat> hear a dogma or a theology or if we can only hear what we ought to do and we're not doing it, it's of no value. If we can only see there's a distinction between God's prophetic program and God's secret program, if we can only hear and understand that intellectually, it's no, of no value. But it must do something to us. It must cause us to be motivated. There must be a reason why we need to know that distinction. And that's what I want to begin with first. When I even use the word program, the first thing that comes to my mind is a plan and a purpose. We cannot have a program without having a plan or purpose. We could not have a program this week if we did not have a plan or a purpose. And the program goes along according to that plan, that purpose. And so it is with God. And while many have taken him down from the level where the word of God reveals to us he is and have made him to be nothing but a mere man, and that is even in a bad position, and we have rejected the God of the Scriptures, and I mean we have to be careful even as believers in Christ that we don't become ensnared into that. 
while it's wonderful God is our best friend, and while it's wonderful that he is all these things to us, he still is the God of creation. I remember how often in catechism class and in Sunday school we were taught that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I thought, boy, he's something, you see. And we were told how great and wonderful God was. And then I've gotten into other realms where we're told what a good friend he is and he kind of lost that wonderment somehow. Yes, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of this universe. And at the same time, he's the God of all grace. And in our love towards him and in our desire to know him, we must never forget that we must respect him and honor him and worship him. And as we come to this plan and to this program, and as we come to the fact that there are 12 uh, apostles for 12 uh, thrones because Christ made it so, because God deigned it so, and because of the apostle Paul, there is one apostle for one body. It is because God planned it so. It is because God deigned it so. When I speak about this, and I have shared this with you at other occasions, I think this is one of the most wonderful things that has come into my Christian experience to realize that in all of the confusion round about me and the way everything seems to go haywire at times, God is still on the throne. And in sometimes, as it has been said, it seems in both ways he's still and he's still on the throne. But nonetheless, he rules over all, even this day. If you'll turn with me for a moment to first, uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 9. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9. I want to give, by way of illustration, what I mean by plan, by God's program, by God's purpose. God does nothing by accident. No one ever takes God by surprise. When the Apostle Paul was saved, and when Adam sinned, and when Lucifer fell, God did not say, guess what happened? I can't believe it. God knows, and I don't mean that in humor, God knows beforehand. God knows because he's God. If he didn't know, then he isn't God. But when I wanted to go into the ministry, and that's something that uh, I have always wanted to do, I don't know, even before I was saved, when other people wanted to be uh, firemen and policemen and what else, I wanted to be a minister. I don't know why. But of course, that's not why I'm here. I hope not. If it is, I'd better leave. But nonetheless, I wanted to go into the ministry. And I was looking for this call. You know, you hear about this fellow was called here and this fellow was called there and uh, you hear about this calling and I wanted so desperately to be called. And not knowing how God goes about this, I didn't go off to Bible school quite yet. But nonetheless, there came a time when we could go away to a conference, a Bible conference. And I remember the man who was speaking was not even speaking on this subject, but he read this verse, and it seemed as if God illuminated my ears, you know, so I could understand. 
He read, he said in uh, chapter two, uh, chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 9, Who hath saved us? I thought, well, that's where I am. At that time, I knew I was saved. And he says, and called us. If he saved us, he's called us. If God has saved us, he saved us for a purpose. He's called us. And what a marvelous uh, illumination that was to me to realize that I was saved, I was called. But then I went on further, and it says, not according to our works, I thank God for that, for I wouldn't be called, but according to his own purpose, his own plan, his own program, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Oh, now we're talking about an infinite God. A God who is beyond time, a God who is eternal, that he has saved us and he has called us and it's in accordance with his program and his grace. If we're saved this evening, you don't have to worry about whether God has called you. He has called you. And it's according to that program and it's according to that grace. Just recently, and this is the reason why my family is not with me at this time, we went through a little difficulty with my daughter. And I've shared that with some of you. We almost lost her this past month in May. And through the skill of some very intelligent uh, surgeons, her life was spared, and by the grace of God, of course. And you know the verse that comes to our mind whenever we're in great difficulty? Isn't it Romans 8, 28? And yet, when we're not in great difficulty, sometimes we quote Romans 8, 28, and some things work together for good. And sometimes it looks like the devil beat the Lord on this one, doesn't it? Humanly speaking now. But we do know that all things work together for good. And I can recall that my daughter had to have four surgeries in two weeks' time. And each time we prayed, now, Lord, let that please be the answer. Let it now be taken care of. And at the end of the third one, I said to my wife, I can't bear another one. I just cannot bear another one. I said, the Lord knows our uh, endurance, and he won't tempt us above which we're able to bear, and I know that all things work together for good. And God was going to make that practical because there was another surgery. And this was the most serious of all. She was four hours on the operating table. The doctor told us she would either die, be paralyzed, or she would have brain damage, possibly, any one of those three. And none of those three happened, by the way. But when that happened and that took place, and in the middle of that surgery, two hours after she was on the table, the doctor called me down to the operating room. What do you think went through my mind? Something terrible has happened. And the two or three minutes that it took to go from her room down to the operating room, my thoughts went everywhere under the sun. But I'll tell you one thing where they went. All things work together for good. And the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And blessed be his name. And God has given us her and he can take her away if it so pleases him. And I don't want, her to take him, uh, want him to take her away. But all things work together for good. And I'm sure some of us, maybe many of us, have been in that same position. I could not help but uh, sympathize with the Mishlers as they told me about their child. 
And uh, because it's only a week ago that it all ended, I felt like going over and grabbed your little boy and hugging him. You know, after you've gone through an experience like that, you feel sorry, and you can experience that more with others. But we know, even when we cannot see any rhyme or reason, there's been times when we've gone through rhyme or re- without any rhyme or reason. Why did this happen? Why did God allow that to happen? All we know is according to his plan, his program, his purpose. Is that not so? But while God has a plan and a program and a purpose, he has it for us individually and he has it for us collectively. Now, I've told you just a little bit of my individual experience and many of us could share that same thing and perhaps even things that were much more difficult. But this is something all of us are not exempted from. When we talk about God's program collectively for every one of us, there is something which none of us can be exempted from. Maybe your child will never end up in the hospital. Maybe you don't even have a child. Maybe you won't have much physical difficulty. Maybe you will. Maybe more so. But there is something which we're all a partaker of, and that is God's purpose, God's program for the church, the body of Christ. There's something which Israel partook of collectively as well as individually. You are a member of his great body, but you're also an individual. You're individually a member of that body, and he's placed you in that body to please him. And together we form that body, not, of course, just this company, but all the saved that have uh, been saved since God began uh, establishing his body, the church. But before we get into God's program for the body of Christ, which we're more familiar with, I'm sure, or we should be, here we are anyway, I'd like to speak a little bit about his plan, his program for the nation Israel. Now, while there are many experts in the field of prophecy, not all those experts are in agreement. Isn't that true? You can pick up book after book after book on prophecy and find interpretation after interpretation and after interpretation on prophecy. So if I had to be an expert in some field, I'd rather be an expert in mystery because there's less difficulty in that area than there is in prophecy. Oh, I'm not saying all who understand the grace message are in agreement, see, on every detail. But I think with all the dis- uh, differences we might have in the uh, grace message concerning the body of Christ, it's nowhere to be compared with the differences you have of those who are trying to understand God's prophetic program without knowing the distinction between a secret program. God has a plan. He has a plan for your life. That's why you're here tonight. God has a plan for my life. That's why I'm here tonight. And the reason we're here tonight is because God has redeemed us, God has saved us, and he has saved us from our sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin in Christ. And we want to make that as practical as as we can, don't we? By the grace of God and through faith, we want to lay hold of that which is ours. Israel also shares great blessings from Almighty God. While we know that, as we sing, that unsearchable riches is the highest calling of man to be members of his body, Israel has a mighty, wonderful calling. 
to be chosen of God from all other uh, people on this earth. What a calling it is. That prophetic program, we call it prophetic because it was prophesied, because the prophets prophesied about it. It was no secret, and from the beginning in Genesis 1-1 right on through uh, to Revelation, we find that it is known, it is made known, it is not hidden, while, of course, there is more depth given towards it. Nonetheless, the prophetic program was known, it was prophesied. And it deals primarily with the nation Israel. We're assured of that. Time and again, we can hear God speaking to Israel and about Israel and concerning Israel. And we also know that that prophetic program deals not only with uh, uh, Israel, but it deals with this old earth, does it not? We can find that on this earth certain places are mentioned. Jerusalem. And Jerusalem means Jerusalem. And Canaan means Canaan. You know how people can get their geography mixed up? Even worse than Pennsylvania, not being a part of the middle of the United States. How many theologians explain to us that Jerusalem doesn't mean Jerusalem, but it means Portersville? You know what I mean by that? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, but beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and in other most parts of the earth, and you know where Jerusalem is? Well, wherever you live. I wish we had that kind of geography when I went to school. I would have passed with A's all the time. You can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And Canaan doesn't mean Canaan. Canaan means heaven. And Jordan doesn't mean a river. That means death. And how many hymns we sing, and they surely are not accurate. But we find that as we look in the Holy Scriptures, we find that God deals with a specific people. He deals with this old earth, and we can read in the Scriptures as we have read in the sixth chapter of Matthew, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth. In the latter day he shall stand, in the latter day, upon the earth. And time and again you go through and you find on this earth, in the earth. And if the earth doesn't mean the earth, what does it mean? Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, where? We find that God speaks about that on this earth and through that nation Israel and having been prophesied by his holy prophets that God is going to establish a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness. Not a kingdom or not a government like we have now, and I'm not trying to run down our government, but no matter how great the government might be in this country or in any country, we cannot say that it's an absolutely righteous government. And there will never be a righteous government until the Lord Jesus Christ himself reigns and rules. And he has promised that it's going to be a government of righteousness, for he himself will see to that. And that he will reign and he will rule through his nation Israel. And someday this old earth will experience that reign. What a nice place it would be compared to what it is now, or it will be. We find that God speaks about that kingdom, and he calls it the kingdom of heaven, not because the kingdom's going on in heaven, but because the kingdom comes from heaven. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As it is in heaven, so on the earth. And we find that God says that that 
uh, is going to last approximately a thousand years. Now, I've had people say to me, you mean to tell me you think that kingdom is going to last a thousand years? I said, I mean to tell you that. How do you know that? You know, the book of Revelation is so full of signs and symbols, you know, and how can you be so sure that isn't a sign or a symbol? So I asked, well, what's it a sign or a symbol of? Explain me what the thousand years mean. Well, I don't know. That's a very questionable verse. Well, until you give me a good answer, I take it that it means a thousand years. What do you take it? Well, then they say, why does God need a thousand years? And then I usually remind them that uh, I'm not in charge. <laughs> you don't even know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm not in charge of determining God's counsel. I'm only responsible to preach the counsel of God. I'm not the one that tells him whether it should be a thousand years, a hundred years, a million years, or a trillion years. It's for him to tell me and for me to tell everyone else. Now that should be sufficient. But there are other reasons that are given to us in the word of God that God tells us why that thousand year reign. And I have just two I'd like to share with you and there could be divisions of others but basically God is going to manifest the glory of Christ in his humanity as well as his deity on this old earth. Someday the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be manifested as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's going to manifest himself as God manifest in flesh. And he's going to rule over this earth. That's one reason. A second reason is to completely fulfill God's covenant agreements. God has promised certain things and he's going to keep those certain things. And the people who try to spiritualize all these things make God to be rather dishonest. He promised to do such a thing and he said he would and he will. I had an uncle, I have an uncle, he's still alive, that as children, if we could get him to promise us something, we knew we had it. We had great faith in that man, still do, humanly speaking. If you could get him to agree to something and promise you something, if it were humanly possible, he'd do it. Well, if you and by the way, he's not a Christian, even this day, not yet. I say not yet. I trust before he would pass off of this life, he will be. But nonetheless, he would keep his word. And if a man who does not profess to be a Christian counts it important to be faithful to his word, what about the God of this universe? He has promised it and he's going to be faithful to it. What about the promise he made to Abraham? Isaac, Jacob, David. What about that new agreement, that new covenant? Are we experiencing all these things that God prophesied and said? Is the nation Israel enjoying all the blessings that God said to her? Not as yet, but someday they will. And that's why that thousand year reign. 
And in that time, this world will be blessed in a way in which it has never been blessed. It will see a government of righteousness such as has never been seen before. And those covenant agreements that God has made with the nation Israel will be literally and completely fulfilled. God is faithful. And he has chosen from among that nation people who will inhabit that kingdom. He's mentioned some of them. We know that he has said that concerning the twelve apostles that they would be in that kingdom. We read already in uh, Matthew, let's turn to Matthew again, chapter 19 that the twelve apostles would have a position of reigning in that kingdom. And no matter how much you would spiritualize this, you will have to come up with the same thing. Matthew 19, verse 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily, truly, I say unto you, that ye who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. This is the time in the regeneration when God comes back, when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. When he comes back to manifest himself in his glory and to fulfill his covenants. He says, ye who have followed me he said, you will sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tri uh, tribes of Israel. That's what God promised them. That's what Christ promised them, and that's what they're going to do. But he also went on further, he says, and everyone that hath forsaken houses and so forth. We find that when we study our scriptures, that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to establish his kingdom, Israel is going to rule and reign with Christ, but their faithfulness will determine their position of reigning. I'm so glad when I heard someone say that so many confuse the fact that <clears throat> dispensationalists teach that the Old Testament saints were saved by works and the New Testament saints are saved by grace. Of course not. But the very ones that ridicule us with that are the very ones that teach that. The ones who teach there's a covenant of works and there's a covenant of grace is teaching that. If any man has been saved at any time, it's been by God's grace and through faith. Now that faith has been required of God to be expressed, as it was said, instrumentally through different ways. And you can go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, find through faith, through faith, through faith, uh, Abraham left the city, through faith Moses, or Noah built an ark, through faith, through faith, these men did these things. And today, through faith, if you really have faith and if you're really saved, you're not going to do anything for your salvation, and if you do, you can't have it. If you're going to work for it, build an ark for it, leave a city for it, be baptized for it, or whatever you're going to do for it, you may not have it. It's by grace. 
and it's through faith plus nothing. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. But works mean something. Even though works were a proof of the faith of that Israelite who believed God and accomplished that work, showed that this man had faith in what God had to say, and by that faith he was given grace in the eyes of God and was saved. Also, by maintaining his good works, he was to have position of reigning. Read that. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Rule over so many cities. Not every Israelite who is saved is going to have the same ruling position in the kingdom. Look at the position Christ has given to the apostles. There are not 20,000 apostles sitting on 20,000 thrones. David has an interesting and marvelous place in that kingdom. And isn't it wonderful when Christ said, "In the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church, not referring to the church, the body of Christ, but referring to his kingdom church. And so many misunderstand what he means by that. Sure, the devil cannot conquer any of God's purpose, but he says the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church. And Hades was a place where people went when they died. And even death would not prevail against the saints of God. Why? Because there was that great resurrection hope. And if worms destroy this body, Job says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And if David were to be dead and buried, he was going to yet see God. He would be raised again from the dead, and he will be. He'll be in that kingdom. And the twelve apostles are not with us today, physically, here upon this earth. But they will be someday physically upon this earth again. Why? Because of the resurrection. And the gates of Hades cannot prevail against God's program. And so there's a time coming that Israel should be looking forward to and one day will be looking forward to a time when they'll be praying with all sincerity thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and a time when they will enter into that kingdom and a time when they will reign and rule with Christ and at that time the twelve apostles will sit upon those twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes and how symbolic that is, isn't it? Twelve thrones, twelve apostles, twelve tribes. The nation Israel. God's prophetic program. Nothing secretive about it. Prophesied from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of the scriptures. But not only does God have a plan for the nation Israel, individually as well as collectively, but he has a plan for his church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church of this dispensation. He has a plan for you individually and collectively. He has what we call his secret program. Now if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. I still rejoice over how often that word mysteries in the scriptures because it's been a mystery to me for so many years, you know, and I didn't even think the word was there. When I first read a book by a living heretic, 
and he wrote so much about this mystery, I thought, wait a minute, see. He's making too much of an emphasis of something. But then scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture was proving what he was saying was so. And like most noble Bereans, I rejected it. I tried my level best to prove it wrong. Is there anybody else here who can say the same thing? Rather than receiving it with all open mind, I had a closed mind and I said, I've got to find this person wrong. Well, he can be wrong at times, the person who wrote the book. But the one who wrote this book can never be wrong. And the truth that was proclaimed from this word is right. And there is such a thing as the mystery. There is such a thing as God's secret, God's secret program. And you know, after I saw that, I thought, where have I been? I have read that book. I went through Bible school and seminary. I mean, we studied the scriptures. And I thank God for the teachers that I had, and they taught me wonderful truths. But you know, I didn't grasp the depth of that. But in Colossians chapter 1, will you look, at me, uh, look with me please at verse 24? Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, the called out ones of God, of which I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest unto his saints. And you know that converted me? I don't even have to have the living Bible. That is so plain. He says here that he was made a minister of the church and he calls it the body of Christ, Christ's body. That's plain enough. Beyond that, he says that he ministers in accordance to the dispensation of God which is given to him. Paul says he's made a minister of the church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that he ministers to that body in accordance to the dispensation that God has given to him. Does that not say that God gave Paul a dispensation or not? If it doesn't, what is it saying? Sometimes I get so carried away, it sounds more like the Amplified than it does the King James, doesn't it? And then he goes on and he says, even the mystery, he gives it a title. which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. I thank God for Dr. Schofield because without him I wouldn't have probably even given a second thought to this. And while some may disagree with me, I believe this is the logical conclusion of his teachings. It's to Paul's epistles we must go for the doctrine of the church. So he said. And so it is true. For it was to the Apostle Paul that a special dispensation of God was given. 
and he says that that dispensation given to him by God, that he ministers according to that dispensation to the church, which is his body. And that hasn't changed. And if you and I are going to minister to that same body, we have to minister according to that dispensation. And he says that dispensation is called the mystery, and that dispensation fills full the word of God. That bothered me for a long time. How could he say that he filled full the word of God or completed the word of God when John the Beloved wrote, years, uh, wrote after his death? And this I didn't get from reading anybody's writing, but later on I found somebody agreed with me, and I hope the rest of you do, basically. But as I was studying this, you know, I thought there's more than one way you can complete something. And I used the thought in my mind as extent and depth. Another theologian says doctrine and detail. But nonetheless, there is the extent of the word of God as well as the depth of the word of God. As far as the extent or the doctrine or the teaching of the word of God, Paul says he filled it full. You see, up until Paul, the mystery wasn't made known. Until Paul, no one knew about God's secret program, but they knew full well God's prophetic program. And we're going to see throughout this week the distinctions. And if we could only take away, if we were studying that prophetic program, the Pauline epistles and just took them and removed them, we'd understand them so much better. The trouble is we get into the Pauline epistles, we try to read it into the Gospels and so forth, and we get confused. And we anticipate revelation. But until the Apostle Paul came on the scene, and I'm not glorifying Paul, but his office, until God raised up this man, until he committed him with, uh, to him that great dispensation which he said was committed to him, and he ministered according to that to the church, the body of Christ, God's word was incomplete. But with that great revelation, which he filled full to the extent as well as the depth of that revelation, we find that the word of God is complete as far as its extent or its doctrine. So that means if Joseph Smith got a revelation after that, that's a further extent? Couldn't be. Couldn't be. I don't care if you get revelations, it can't be. Because Paul filled it full. And John went into great depth on already that which was known. You read the book of the Revelation. That's a book of prophecy, not a book of mystery. We find there God tells us a great deal about the kingdom, the tribulation period, and what God has been prophesying to the nation Israel of her last days, the day of the Lord. And so he gave great depth to the word of God and completed the word of God in depth, in, length, in extent that is finished, in depth that is finished. The book we have before us is the completed word of God in depth and extent in doctrine as well as detail. God hath spoken. When we talk about this secret program, we realize there are some distinctions from his prophetic program. While it's the same God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is the same God whom we worship today. 
And God never changes. I like that. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, he's the same forever. I am the Lord God, I change not. But his dealings with mankind has changed, and I like that too. And while we have a lot of trials and tribulations around us, and while sometimes we may wish we hadn't been born in this generation or whatever we might sometimes lament, as far as God's program goes, it's a wonderful privilege to be a member of his body. But it wasn't prophesied. It was kept secret. He says that. Even the mystery, verse 26, which hath been hidden from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest unto his saints. You can't turn back to the Old Testament and find it. We find that Israel was God's very special people. And some today try to make the church, the body of Christ, to be God's Israel, spiritually speaking. But God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Romans 11.32 and other uh, verses that God has, is having grace upon all, for he has cast Israel aside, that he might have grace upon all. He tells us in Ephesians and many other parts of the Scripture that today God is no respecter of persons. Under the prophetic program, God was a respecter of persons. It mattered whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. A great deal. Israel was blessed on this old earth. Canaan, that beautiful land. Jerusalem, that holy city. But Ephesians 1.3 tells us we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And again, I believe heaven means heaven. And Jerusalem means Jerusalem. The prophetic program was looking forward and anticipating Christ coming back to this earth with such expectation. Because when Christ came back to the earth, then he would manifest himself as God. He would manifest himself as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will rule and he will reign in that peace and righteous kingdom of his. And they were looking forward to that, for it's at his return that that kingdom will be established. But the mystery explains why Christ hasn't returned. Do you know there is no good theological reason, biblical reason, or any sane reason why Christ has not returned to this earth unless it be the fact that God has a different program going on? Even if you were to spiritualize as much as you can spiritualize, You've got to see there's some problems. That's how I got converted. There were too many problems. There may be problems on this side. You can ask me a few questions. I might not be able to answer you. But there's an awful lot on the other side. And the only one that, can, that has given any satisfactory answer to that was the Apostle Paul. In fact, Peter even explains that in 2 Peter 3 when he talks about the Lord's coming back and speaking about his second coming. And he says that God is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Jew and Gentile alike. 
And where did you get that from, St. Peter? Even as our beloved brother Paul hath written unto you. You see, we don't even have to turn to that. We know that so well. For those of you who don't know it so well, it's 2 Peter chapter 3. God explains through the Apostle Paul and used the Apostle Paul to explain to us why he hasn't returned. 2,000 years nearly he hasn't returned. And the only way you can explain that humanly is either be an amillennialist and say he just never is or you're going to have to turn and say God is doing something different. If you want to be an amillennialist, you better throw away geography books. And you better start questioning your scriptures. And I don't mean that derogatory either. But if God doesn't mean what he says, then what does he mean? And if I need a theologian to explain to me what God says, what am I going to do? Because I don't know any theologian, I don't know any Bible teacher that has all of it. If you can find him, then maybe I'll follow him. But you'll never find him. So the only hope I have is that blessed book with the blessed Spirit of God. And so we find there are distinctions. We find there was one apostle for one body and Paul says that he was that pattern, the pattern of God's long-suffering. How Paul deserved the wrath of God. Why that rebellious tyrant, even though he did it ignorantly, what he did, he was injurious. He said he made havoc of the church. But what a change took place when God's marvelous grace was bestowed upon him. You know what you deserve? You don't deserve the best. You know, treat yourself, you deserve the best. No, you deserve the worst. But by grace, you get the best. What a pattern. One apostle, a Roman citizen, and a Hebrew of a Hebrew. One man, deserving wrath, but receiving grace. And today, Jew and Gentile alike, deserving wrath, but receiving grace. Twelve apostles on twelve thrones for the twelve tribes, looking forward to that wonderful kingdom, that time of regeneration, when the Lord himself would return. What a wonderful time to think about. God's program, God's purpose. But when you reign with Christ, just as with Israel, it will be in accordance to our faithfulness now. God has an individual plan. We're all members of his body. And as members of his body, as we suffer with him, we reign with him. And we find as we deny ourselves of ungodliness and as we realize that God is interested in our sanctification, that he wants us to be separated unto him, and as we by the grace of God rest upon the fact that we have been crucified with Christ, positionally it's there, and let's make it practical, we find there is reward and we will reign with him. Rule and reign with Christ. Israel will rule and reign on this old earth with Christ and we will reign with Christ throughout his universe. How important is that plan to you? If it's important enough, we'll find we'll mean business 
with what we say. Shall we pray? Father, how we thank Thee for these truths. Now by Thy grace we pray that we may apprehend these truths to our individual lives. Teach us the distinctions, not just for distinction's sake, but that we might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus hath laid hold of us. In whose name we ask it. Amen.